15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again, and thank you for joining us on this, the 287th episode of Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley, your host. We talk astronomy, space science, just about anything that people desire, uh, and we get lots of good ideas to uh, to discuss uh, from the audience, so thank you for that. Uh, today on the program, we are going to be doing uh, Shock, Horror, a James Webb Telescope update. Uh, we'll, although we're getting a lot of questions about it too, so it's uh, it's obviously at uh, front of mind at the moment. We're also going to talk about what drives cyclones on Jupiter, and you might be a bit surprised by the answer to that question. And it is thought that there used to be rings around the sun, and that makes me wonder what happened to them. And it also may have resulted in Earth being smaller than it could have been, perhaps. And that cube that the Chinese found on Mars, moon. They finally figured out what it is. Moon. A real big surprise. Not. <laughs> um, plus, plus some audience questions from James in Cincinnati. Go the Bengals. Ralph in Northern California, and Andy in Eastbourne. That's all to come on Space Nuts. My partner in crime uh, is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How did you know I was a criminal? <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw your mugshot. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Forward and sideways. That's right. <laughs> All over Facebook. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh, how you been? Very well, thank you. All good. Uh, one slight uh, downer in the Watson family is my younger son, Will, who is now 20, yeah, coming up to 26 this year. Uh, he's got COVID and he's not very well. Oh, no. Yeah, he's uh, languishing, feeling really crook at the moment and uh, having to isolate. And he lives not he lives actually in Newcastle where you used to hang out. Yeah, that, yeah my yeah. stomping ground as a kid. Indeed. Mm. Yeah. Well, so. we know many people who've got it now. Yeah. It's just it's reached that point where it's not a matter of if you're going to get it, it's no, when. When, yeah, exactly. And we're just pressing on regardless but i i know of um half a dozen people in my immediate circle that have got it so far so good for, mm -hmm. for me and jude but um yeah it can't be long she had two staff members out with it uh one of the staff members i work with the salvation army office her her husband's got it yeah yep. it's yep. um so it's we've, been, we've been dodging bullets like no yeah. one else's business, but yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. you can't dodge them forever, I reckon. Yeah. But the good news is I got my booster yesterday. So oh, good. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's done. Yeah. No side effects either. Oh, maybe just a little bit fatigue, but nothing nothing significant. Got the Pfizer dose this time because I got AstraZeneca the first time. So, that's a, same with me. That's exactly yeah. what happened. And I, and I had no side effects either from any mm -hmm. of them, in fact. I've been very lucky. I, I got to tell you though, they uh, released a study um, what a month or so ago to say that uh, they've they've discovered that AstraZeneca is the um, vaccine that keeps more people out of hospital than the others. There you go. So, there you go. Mm. <laughs> oh dear. Anyway, um, we I, I'm happy to get anything. Yes, so that's where I'm at. Yeah. 
enough of COVID. I think we've um, you know spent two years talking about that, and it's not over yet. But uh, let's let's get on to our first topic, Fred, and that is the latest update on the James Webb Telescope. Uh, I uh, saw some recent reports to say that um, all is going well, uh, things are unfolding and unfurling, and uh, it's. Um, it's going along nicely. I've seen some great astrophotography too. A few people have actually picked up uh, images of it, which is ex- quite astounding. Okay, no, I haven't seen that. Um, uh, do they have any detail in them or is it just a point no, of light? it's just a streak of light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what you'd expect. It's not big enough really for a small telescope to to resolve it into, into a shape. You can do that with um, the International Space Station, but of course mm. that's only... 400 kilometres away. So, anyway, uh, you're you're right. The news is all good um, coming out of um, you know coming out of the the uh, space telescope. Sorry, the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, the big news, of course, is that everything that was supposed to unfurl has done. Uh, and the last, uh, the latest thing was the last portion. Of the mirror, uh, remember it, it, it. It's it's in eighteen segments, but it basically was in three parts, with uh, a central section uh, and uh, of uh, I think twelve segments, and then uh, two three segment sectors on the outside that unfolded uh, and you know locked into shape. Um, of course, they still haven't turned that array of mirror segments into a contiguous optical surface yet. That's uh, for the for the future, um, it, they've got another uh, almost six months before we expect, in fact, more like five months before we expect to see any images from it. So there's a long way to go still. Um, but the telescope is in good shape. Uh, there was a nice, really nice comment from uh, Thomas Zabuchan, uh, who's chief of NASA's science missions. Um, he, he said, uh, we have deployed the telescope on orbit, a magnificent telescope, the likes of which the world has never seen. He was talking to the, to the team that did it, uh, and he said to them, so how does it feel to make history, everybody? You just did it. <laughs> I love that. And it is. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a big step, and, um, you know, it's fantastic news. Um, the, the telescope is well over halfway to its Lagrange point, uh, it's more than a million kilometres away. It's probably significantly more than that now. That was uh, where it was uh, a couple of days ago. So really um, very, very, very good, uh, very good news coming out of the web. Um, and let's keep our fingers crossed that all will continue to be well. Yes. How quickly do um, signals and instructions to and from the James Webb Telescope take once it's reached its destination? It wouldn't be that long, would it? It's not that. No, it's not. Uh, so uh, 1.5 million kilometres divided by 300,000. Uh, it's an easy calculation. It's got a five in it somewhere in the answer. So uh, 300,000, is it 50 seconds? That might be right. Okay, I'll take your word for it. No, it's, it can't be 50. Um, it, it's, it's, it's five seconds. That's the answer. I'm just doing it now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes, it's five yeah. seconds. Five seconds. Each way. Nice work. Oh, that's good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I did hear a news report only this morning that uh, they reckon it's got enough fuel to work for 20 years. Yeah, Mm. that's right, keeping it on station principally. Yeah, exactly. Okay, uh, well, we'll probably have another update for you next week. Uh, I think the scariest part's over, but um, there's still a bit to do, so 
don't count any chickens. As no, yet. that's right. There's there's always the unexpected. Yep. <laughs> yeah. In fact, we you know they've already experienced the unexpected when um, I, I think we might have mentioned this last week. Andrew, heating the, motors. The, the overheating motors. Yes. Yeah. With, when they've stretched the um, uh, the heat shield or the, the sun shield. Mm. Anyway, <clears throat> that all got cured by taking them out of the sunlight, and it's all fixed. Indeed. Okay, let's move on to our next story. And this is uh, one uh, that has been uh, published, a new study into what might be driving the cyclones on Jupiter. Uh, For those who have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, some people call them typhoons, some people call them hurricanes. Yes. (laughs) We call them cyclones in Australia. And uh, it's an interesting um, development in terms of uh, what they've come up with because uh, what drives cyclones and typhoons and hurricanes on Earth is uh, is the oceans. There are no oceans on Jupiter, but they think it's pretty much the same kind of thing. Yes, that's right. It's, it is. It's an amazing story, this. And um, I guess to some extent you could um, – you, you could – lead your thinking in this direction simply by looking at some of the photographs or, or some of the images that have, of Jupiter's cloud belts that have come back from the Juno spacecraft, because that's what's really driven this, this realisation. Juno, um, uh, NASA spacecraft in orbit around Jupiter, uh, in, a, in, in an orbit that actually carries it within, within Jupiter's radiation belts briefly, uh, which uh, meant that all the electronics had to be Specially uh, shielded, uh, but Jupiter. Uh, sorry, Juno has been doing a fabulous job. I can't remember when when it went into orbit. It's a few years ago now, uh, but um, the images that come back show the structure in these cyclones. You know the the, the structure around the great red spot, uh, which itself is a is a cyclone, um, but other, other smaller features, and uh, in particular the way you can see the way these um, circulate, these spinning. Uh, uh, fragments of atmosphere uh, with their different coloration, how they sort of drag the the, the other um, atmospheric features around with them and cause these eddies around mm. uh, around the edges of them. And it was, um, well, uh, as you said, oceanography. It was a physical oceanographer uh, by the name of Leah Siegelman uh, who is at the Scripps Institution for Oceanography, well-known oceanography institution at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, and Leah looked at this and thought, wait a minute, this, this atmosphere is behaving like an ocean. Um, and, you know, it's basically uh, the, what she's done um, is looked at the, the images in close detail it, and, and bringing to bear the, the physical principles that are used in uh, what's called geophysical fluid, fluid dynamics, the way fluids work uh, on the Earth. Yeah. Um, and um, basically has come up with evidence for something called moist convection uh, as being the driving force for these, for these phenomena. Uh, moist convection is essentially when hot air rises. It's, the, it's convection is exactly what it is. It's uh, warmer air rising. But, of course, there's moisture in it as well. And uh, there's a nice quote uh, from, uh, from Leah, she says, when I saw the richness of the turbulence around the Jovian cyclones, 
with all the filaments and smaller eddies, it reminded me of the turbulence you see in the ocean around eddies. Uh, they are especially evident on high-resolution satellite images of plankton blooms, for example. So, you know, we've got images that look, look similar, uh, mm. but caused by an entirely different, uh, uh, not entirely different physical process, but entirely different phenomena that reveal the images. Uh, it's the coloration of the eddies caused by different materials within Jupiter's atmosphere that gives gives you the uh, the impression of these things on Jupiter. And plankton blooms on the Earth, but what's driving them, the underlying physical mechanisms, are, are common. Um, and, in fact, it's got a really, uh, it's got some neat outcomes because um, we understand the Earth's ocean better than we understand the atmosphere of Jupiter. And you, you might be able to draw conclusions from the way the Earth's ocean behaves uh, and, and, and actually test that on the atmosphere of Jupiter, whether, whether you've got similar phenomena. Um, yeah, as she says, uh, once again, this is Leah, to be able to study a planet that is so far away and find physics that apply there is fascinating it begs the question, do these processes also hold true for our own blue dot? So you can do it both ways. You can look yeah. at, you know, the phenomenon on Jupiter and draw conclusions for that and say, does this work on Earth? So a very nice piece of work, very nice indeed. Yeah, for sure. And in answer to your question, uh, the Juno space probe went into orbit uh, around Jupiter in July of 2016, the 4th of July. Yeah, uh, it's amazing. So it's, uh, yeah. Five and a half years already. Yeah, feels feels like a couple of weeks, Andrew. What was the um, what was the length of that mission supposed to be? Do we know? Um, yes, it was very well planned. Actually, the, um, I think it's uh, I think they're still on schedule with it. I do remember that um, looking at the mission profile because uh, I think as the as the mission goes further on, they get uh, the the orbit changes. There's there's a lot of orbit changes uh, for the spacecraft. And it, they probably take the higher risk uh, things like plunging deeper into Jupiter's magnetosphere later in the mission when you've got some good data from the from the beginning. A bit like Cassini, which flew between Saturn's rings and the planet right at the end of its mission. Yeah. If it all came to nothing, well, you know, well, what we wanted. But Yeah, that's right. Mm. So, yes, so I'm not sure of the answer to that, but we can certainly check up and find out. But I do remember it was very well, you know, it's, it's well documented what was going to happen. Yeah, I think I've said before, it must be exciting to be on one of these mission teams. Uh, you know, Juno, Juno got a lot of attention when it first started and what was it, five years it took to get there or something. And, you know, these people are still working. They're still, you know, it, it's not a matter of, okay, it's got there and it's going around taking pretty pictures. Uh, people are still working the project. Yeah. And it'll be the same with James Webb. It'll be the same, you know, any kind of mission like that. Um, there, there are control rooms all over the place where people turn up every day to yes, do what they need right. to do <laughs> to get the data and, and learn everything they possibly can about these strange worlds that we're so close to yeah. on a universal scale. What a job. And and for many people, that's a lifetime's work because they're probably involved with the mission planning, you know, 10, 20 years before the mission flies. Um, I remember talking to um, Linda Spilker, who's, who was the project scientist for Cassini. She came out, out to Australia a couple of years ago. and We, we uh, looked after her here because she gave a lecture for us. Emerson yep. Levick lecture, and she said it was her entire career basically. And she's a very mature scientist. She's not, you know, she's still working and still doing great stuff. 
uh, but she's uh, uh, she, she's not in her twenties anymore, if I can put it that way, and neither am I. Uh, and she's yeah, she said it's it's her entire career, and she's still going strong with possible future missions to Saturn. So wow. long may it continue. Yes, indeed, fantastic. All right, uh, we will uh, obviously. You know, there might be more to tell in regard to yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, going forward too. Indeed, there might. And you'll hear it probably first or fiftieth here on <laughs> Space Nuts. <laughs> oh dear. We'll take a break. You're with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Now, if you're a social media follower, we are on social media and we uh, we have thousands of people that uh, are following us on Facebook, whether it's the official Space Nuts Facebook page or the user-created uh, Facebook page, which is the Space Nuts Podcast Group Facebook page, where uh, you can all talk to each other, ask each other questions, um, send you know, upload your pictures. A lot of people do that. Sandy in Melbourne uh, has been publishing a lot of his uh, astro photographs. And I've got to send uh, Sandy a, um, a shout-out and a thank you because he's been helping me with this little baby here to... Um, to get my astrophotography kickstarted, so I'm, I, I really do appreciate what he's um, what he's been doing. So thanks, Sandy. Um, but yes, if you would like to uh, get onto social media and find us, uh, you can do a search in uh, your Facebook search engine for Space Nuts or Space Nuts Podcast Group. Uh, we're also on Instagram. SpaceNuts.io is our username, and our numbers are um, yeah pushing on towards about two hundred followers now. So it's growing really fast. And uh, we appreciate that. Uh, so, uh, yes, thank you for uh, chasing us up or following us on Facebook. And we, we occasionally get questions through social media as well. Uh, and that's lovely. Now, Fred, um, what's this thing about um, Earth being smaller than it could have been because there may have been rings around the sun that stopped a super Earth from being born? This is very, very strange. And I'm, to- I'm, I'm guessing we're talking you know, pre-planets, the very, very yeah. early stages of the solar system. We are, yes. So we're talking about the time when the sun was a newborn star. It was surrounded by a protoplanetary disk, uh, which is a disk of dust and gas, uh, which is very turbulent and in which the planets form. And we, we know these things exist, uh, or we know that the sun had one of these disks around it because we see them around other stars, around young stars. Uh, and as I said, they're called protoplanetary disks. But um, the, the, there's interesting details in this. Now, when you, you know, we know much more about the origin of the solar system by looking at the way other solar systems have evolved. Uh, and now we've got this almost an industry of discovering the planets of, of other stars. Um, we can look at these distant solar systems and and compare them with our own. And um, that is the basis of this work, which has been carried out by um, scientists, uh, one of whom at least is at uh, Rice University, which is in uh, Houston, in Texas. Actually, uh, I think uh, he is the lead lead author, Andre Isidoro. Um, And what what they've they've posed the question, in fact, I can quote uh, Andre exactly on this. It's always nice to be able to quote these scientists saying, mm. saying what they've actually said. Um, he says, if super-Earths are super common, 
because that's what we found pretty well in our investigations of other, so uh, other solar systems. If super Earths are super common, why don't we have one in the solar system? Um, and that's a brilliant question. You know, if, if other solar systems frequently have these uh, planets which are about twice the size, the diameter of the Earth, uh, up to 10 times the mass of the Earth, what we call a super Earth, if they are as common as they seem to be, why haven't we got one? Um, what we've got is, of course, the gas, the ice giants, Neptune and, and Uranus, which are rather bigger than that. They're not what you'd call super, you know, you, you wouldn't call them super Earths. Um, they, they are, they're too big. And they, they were formed out in the depths of the solar system, whereas the, the rocky planets were all formed uh, in the inner region of the solar yeah. system. And that's actually... Uh, the clue uh, to why the solar system doesn't have one of these that um, Andre Isidoro and his team have actually uncovered. So they've done all kinds of modelling of what the early solar system was like. Uh, and it comes down to uh, something that I think you and I have spoken about before. I certainly wrote about this in Spacewalk because it's such an interesting uh, idea. Uh, the, the idea of these frost lines uh, or sometimes called snow lines. Yes. Um, which is where the distance from a star, where, for example, where water turns from a vapor into ice, basically, uh, that will be called a, a water snow line. Um, but you, uh, so this, uh, and actually, the, the neat thing is the water snow line is, if I remember rightly, it's somewhere between the orbits of Mars and. Um, and Jupiter mm. uh, today, but it, it may not have been like that in the early solar system. I think these things were closer in in the early solar system. Anyway, you, you don't just have water that produces a snow line. Further out, there is a carbon monoxide snow line where uh, oh. carbon monoxide becomes uh, an ice rather than uh, a vapor. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, carbon monoxide, of course, um, found in comets. That comets are, are made of ices, and CO ice is one of them. But there's also further in towards the the sun, where the temperature is hotter, and certainly in the in the young sun's period it was. Uh, uh, um, I think I've got that the wrong way around. Actually, I think the young sun was cooler than the than the um, uh, than the present day sun, which is why these lines are closer in uh, to the to the sun rather than further out. Yeah. Um, sorry, sorry for the confusion there. But anyway, further in, when you get nearer to the to the young sun, you come to a line which you could still call a snow line, but it's kind of not really anything to do with snow. This is where the silicates, where the rocky stuff actually turns into a solid material rather than being a vapor. Uh, and it's sometimes called the silicate sublimation line. Uh, sublimation is when something turns from a, from a solid into a gas. Um, and so uh, if you go nearer than that, you've, you've got a gas, uh, the silicates are gas rather than uh, solid. So what you've got is all these um, regions where there's this is key transition from a vapor to a solid for different materials. And it turns out that you get um, planetesimals forming in those regions. These are the, the, you know, the things that are the rudimentary building blocks of planets. And the theory that these people, this, this group at Rice University, have uh, developed uh, is that because you've got these regions where the planetesimals are, are more common, uh, you get essentially what they call pressure bumps. Uh, 
regions where the dust and material is is concentrated, um, and that actually itself gen, gender, uh, generates the planetesimals uh, because because of the sublimation uh, features. So uh, what um, uh, Dr. Isidoro says is our model shows pressure bumps can concentrate dust and moving pressure bumps can act as planetesimal factories. So, you know, the two go together. Um, the uh, pressure bumps regulated how much material was available to form planets in the inner solar system. And so what they're suggesting is that um, it's the it's this regulatory uh, uh, attribute of the pressure bumps that stops the Earth turning into a super-Earth. I'm not really explaining this very well. Um, they, they they said um, if they... It, it's basically the way these rings form dictate what size planets you get. And they suggest that if... And this comes from their computer simulations, that if the if uh, at least one of these rings of planetesimals was delayed, if it formed later yeah. in the solar system's history, then you might have got super-Earths rather than uh, just <laughs> standard Earths. Um, um, uh, Dr. Isidoro made a comment, by the time the pressure bump formed in those cases, this is in the, the sort of inner planet region of the solar system, by the time the pressure bump formed in those cases, a lot of mass had already invaded the inner system and was available to make super-Earths. So by the time when... So the time when this middle pressure bump formed might be a key aspect of the solar system. In other words, um, it, 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 had that been delayed, the super-Earths might, because there was mass available to make super-Earths, had that pressure bump been delayed in its formation, you might have got super Earth, but you didn't because it wasn't delayed. Right. I'm sorry, I haven't really explained that very well, Andrew. It's it, all a came down, it all came down to the timing. It's the timing, that's right, exactly so. But a really interesting study, and one, yeah. you know, for um, for any listeners who want to follow it up, there's plenty of it, plenty of detail uh, on the web. Um, I've been looking. Uh, it's at, in uh, Nature Astronomy, I think. That's where it's published. That's right. Yep. I've been looking at the science alerts, uh, science alert page, which is uh, always worth a look. It's a good, mm. uh, good news site. Yeah. All right. Here's a question for you then. All uh, right. Let's, let's <laughs> assume for a moment that the conditions and timing were right to create a super Earth, and that this planet became a super Earth in its early days. What would that have meant for us? Yeah, we'd have been super Earthlings. Um, so rather than just standard Earthlings, we'd have been super. <laughs> I In don't know. Way. Uh, well, we might have been, uh, you know, th this is a bigger planet uh, we're talking about, 10 times the mass of the Earth, significantly greater gravitational pull. Um, so, uh, I'm, I, you know, who knows what how we might have evolved, but it, it, it could have had life evolved and and. Um, developed to the stage that it has now on planet Earth, who knows what we might have been like. We yeah. would certainly have been very different. Um, bigger? Uh, yeah, I think we'd have been bigger. You know, we'd have had to be beefier. We'd solid, uh, you know, big-boned we'd have been. Big-boned, oh, yes. that's, the, that's the word. I'm not bad, I'm just big-boned. <laughs> yeah, because you'd have needed the strength of those bones to, you know, put up with the increased gravity. So your bones might have been made of something else other than other wow. than calcium and things of that sort. 
it, it's interesting to think about, isn't it? It's um, it is. Yes, there's a science fiction story in that for you, Andrew. There probably, <laughs> there probably is. Although in the Turanian Enigma, there is a species that have those kinds of characteristics. A big bone. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but uh, for for a different reason. But you yeah. know, I went that way. Yeah. Maybe I should have thought of a super Earth, but anyway, doesn't matter. Doesn't no, matter. It's a nice story. for another one, another, <laughs> another story. No, but it's uh, yeah, it's fascinating. So uh, we are what we are because of just the freak of timing. Maybe that's right. Yes, maybe that's right. Fascinating. All right, uh, that is uh, where we'll leave um, uh, the sun and its rings and the not super Earth that we live on, and move over to the greatest mystery in human history, and that is the cube that they found on the moon. Uh, when the Chinese uh, U-2 rover sort of pointed its camera and went, oh, look, it's a box. Um, they've found out what it is, Fred. I'm very <laughs> excited to learn the answer to this question. As you can see, I am just over the moon. Yeah. Oh, you should be on the radio. Yeah. Um, it's Yeah, it's a rock. <laughs> of course it's a rock. <laughs> what else was it going to be? No, it's always a rock, isn't it? I mean, it's, uh, it's the old age-old uh, issue of Paradolia where we see things that, look like something else and of course mars has been the place where most of these uh, things have come from um yeah. i made a list a few years ago for a talk of all the different things that have been seen on mars from from uh, witches hats to uh, to top hats uh, truck tires there was a truck tire found on mars uh, there's a gray ghostly lady who never seems to move she's been found on mars yeah. uh, but they're all rocks <laughs> it, yeah and it's funny you, you, what's it called pareidolia Is yeah that pareidolia you, that's right yeah, yeah. where you where you try to create yeah you, know, you see something and you give it a, a life image yes like. it, it, it we, we make it into something that's familiar yeah I, that's I, right. that happened to me this morning i was on the way to um to the radio station before my my breakfast shift and the sun was already coming up, so there was a bit of light. And I saw something ahead of me and I thought, well, that's a dead rat for sure. No, it was just a piece of tyre rubber. Yeah. 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 My brain interpreted yeah, a dead right. rat. Yeah. I, I, I've swerved for dark patches, just, you know, a bit of dark bitumen on the road that you think is, is a kangaroo. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly the same thing. That's right. Yeah, you don't want to hit one of those things. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Speaking of big bones, you do not want to hit. No, no, exactly. Um, I, many, many times I've had accidents like that, which um, are always very, very distressing for everybody yeah, they, concerned. Yes, they just, they certainly can destroy a car. And, Indeed. Uh, yeah. yeah. So well, anyway, uh, nothing like that on the moon, and not even a cube. Actually, the um, the, the Chinese um, uh, comment people commentating on it uh, in China, uh, they nicknamed it. Um, the mystery hut. Uh, oh. They thought it looked like a bit of a house or an enclosure. Right. Um, but, it, but in fact, the pareidolia has continued because um, when they, so the, what they did was take the, the rover, which is called U2. Uh, it's U2-2, actually, this one, because U2-1 was on the near side of the, of the moon. And U2 is the jade rabbit. <clears throat> That's uh, it, what it, its name means in, Chinese, in, in China. But the um, the first person to see this rock in a bit more detail apparently um, thought it looked like a, a jade rabbit. <laughs> it's a rabbit. Oh, uh, no. so, yeah. Um, it says that, the, um, yes, the, it's the Chinese Outspace website 
uh, has a has a journal on um, driving a, a driving diary for U two number two, um, and uh, one of the comments is um, uh, the the drivers were a little disappointed that this was a rock, but just as everyone was lost, a driver stared at the enlarged picture and covered his mouth and exclaimed, "Gosh, this is U two!" Uh, so it's now the rock is being called Jade Rabbit uh, right. because that's what U two means. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I had two theories. It was going to be a rock or it was going to be my missing Amazon delivery. <laughs> right, yeah. But that's okay because Jeff offered to go and get it for me. Uh, good, good. Good on you, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> all right, but it's just a rock, so it's, it's very disappointing. Rock. Yeah. Uh, as they all turn out to be. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, uh We've been telling you about Patreon and Supercast for quite a while. If you want to become a contributor to the show on a regular monthly basis, uh, you choose how much you want to spend uh, to contribute to Space Nuts. We recently told you about the option to buy us a cup of coffee. There is a buy us a cup of coffee button for a one-off uh, one-off donation to uh, to Space Nuts. And a lot of people have taken up that offer. So thank you. We appreciate it. Uh, one person, Fred, has done it literally. <laughs> Oh, yes, try. We've, we've got a Starbucks voucher. Good on and you. And I'd like Andrew. to send a big shout out and thank you to Marie Claire in, I'm going to assume, Miami this time of year where she's based uh, for sending us, uh, <laughs> literally sending us coffee. So thank you for that. I don't know how we're going to split that three ways. but no, that's um, all right. We'll work it out. And you can watch. <laughs> <laughs> That'll work. <laughs> okay. Um now, let's uh, go to our question. We've got three questions today. One of them's a real quick one, so we're going to throw in, it, uh, throw in uh, that one at the end. But we'll go firstly to Cincinnati, James. Hello, Mr. Dunkley and Professor Watson. James from Cincinnati, USA. Mr. Dunkley, the last time we spoke, you said I had a great radio voice. Thank you for that. <laughs> I'll have you know, I also have a face for radio. Me too. <laughs> on to my question. Many of Hubble's greatest discoveries were unplanned and unexpected from its primary mission. What unplanned and unexpected discoveries are you hoping James Webb Space Telescope will uncover that are not part of its primary mission? Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Mm, thank you, James. We don't know because they're unplanned. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's a, it's a great question, and it, it's actually, uh, it, it's not, you know, it's not just uh, airy-fairy stuff, this. One of the one of the points that is always made when you make the case to build a new facility in astronomy, um, you, what you do is you write a you write a, effectively a business case as to what what this new whatever gizmo it is, whether it's Alma or the very large telescope or James Webb or whatever it is, you you build a science case for it. So what science are you going to uh, push forward? What are you going to uh, discover? Uh, particularly to study using this new facility. And the, the James Webb Telescope, of course, is many, many different things, including the first stars and galaxies, which is an incredible thing to be looking out for. Uh, and at the other end of the scale, the atmospheres of nearby exoplanets, being able to analyse what's in the atmospheres of the planets of other stars. All of those things go into the science case. But the point is always made that with every new facility, uh, that's ever been built in astronomy. It's been the unexpected that has really often uh, changed the direction of science. It's the kind of thing that really 
you couldn't you couldn't think of. Um, I mean, people do think of these things, and scientists certainly think way outside the box. Oh, what if? What if we found X or Y? Um, <clears throat> but it's that unexpected thing that actually makes astronomy one of the most exciting sciences because you don't know what's going to come out when you've got this new whiz bang telescope. So, for my guess, I guess. I don't know, maybe um, uh, megastructures, artificial megastructures around other other stars. How's that for a... <laughs> just thrown in, wow. you know, just just throwing it in as a as an idea. That would be amazing. <laughs> would, wouldn't it? Yeah. Especially if you could prove that's what they were, and not just clouds of dust or uh, jade rabbits or things floating around in, uh, in the universe. I, I suspect what we're going to gain from this is more and more and more questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good answer. Because of the the way this has been planned out and and its um, ultimate goal, uh, we're going to learn a heck of a lot about the early universe and and how things tick, but I think that will throw up so many more questions that will then result in more and more study, analysis, papers being written, uh, it, it's. I won't call it a can of worms because it's not. A can of worms suggests uh, something negative, but I, I think it will open up, well, maybe Pandora's box. Yeah, yeah um, that's that right. Might, that might be it. I, I mean, that's a good point because in a way, <clears throat> excuse me, what often happens is you, you, you observe things uh, which don't fit what you had hypothesised. So... Mm-hmm. Like we we have good reason to think that the first stars switched on within the first hundred million years of the existence of the universe. But what if what if the James Webb fails to find them? You know that, that there's no evidence that that is the case. Then you've suddenly got a, a, you're working in a different paradigm. Where where did these stars come from? How did it how did it all kick off? Uh, so that's often what what does happen. And that's again, it's the way science progresses. It's building a theory, testing it. Revising your theory, testing it again, that, that whole process. Yeah. Of course, we'll have all the answers by the middle of the year. <laughs> when they switch it on. What are they doing first? Do we know? What's the first? I don't know. No, sorry, I don't know. There'll be, there will be commissioning observations, which will certainly um, in themselves might well start probing, you know, the new, the new regions of, of knowledge that we expect to, to come from the James Webb. I'll, try, I'll check up on that. I'll try and find out what their commissioning observations are going to be. How do they decide what to do? I mean, do you, like, can Fred Watson put in a submission for telescope time through James Webb or is that not how it works? It, 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 later on it will be, but not, not for the commissioning process. But, yes, it will be open access that astronomers will be able to apply for time on it, just as they can with the Hubble telescope. Fantastic. Um, so, uh, yeah, if I was clever enough to put in a proposal... <laughs> The James the, Webb, uh, the, the Fred Watson megastructure study. Okay, okay, yeah, all right. Okay. I'll try it. Yeah, you know, people. Yeah, you know, it, it's happened in the past. People have wanted to use telescopes to look for aliens. Yes, they don't look. They don't look negatively uh, negatively on that, do they, Fred? Uh, uh, they don't if you come with plenty of money to enable it, because that's exactly <laughs> what the Breakthrough Listen project is. Somebody turns up at uh, Yuri Milner, in fact, uh, a couple of radio telescopes and buys $100 million worth of telescope time. Yeah. Mm, wow. Okay. Uh, thank you, James. Hope we um, came up with no answer for you there. Because there isn't one <laughs> no. uh, 
uh, maybe. Uh, let's move on to Northern California. Hello, Master Nuts. This is Ralph in Northern California again. <laughs> Love the podcast. Um, I'm here's an odd question. I'm writing a an action adventure novel with a fair amount of um, uh, science fiction in it, and I have a, an aspect I'd like to ask about. I know it sounds unlikely, and but then again, science fiction gives license to this kind of stuff. The, the Lagrange point, Lagrange points—they are virtual, virtually no gravity points. I'm wondering if it would be possible, as per my story, to do a slingshot effect with the Lagrange point. You know, where spaceships um, are pulled around an object with gravity in space, but if there was no gravity and they pointed the object or the spacecraft in a certain way approaching the, the Lagrange point, I guess it would be pulled one way or the other since there's no gravity at that point. Or is it such an infinitesimally small point that it's just impossible to do that? I know that when spacecraft are parked there, they have to be um, maintained a bit with a little bit of retro action, I guess, to keep them within that area. But it also brought up a point with the James Webb um, telescope going out to a Lagrange point, uh, how much maintenance that would require. And, and that's where Ralph got cut off. So uh, yes. we can only go with what we uh, don't know what happened there, but it's called the internet. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, good luck with the, the novel and let me know when it's done so that I can stay, so I can read it. Uh, I'd, love to, I'd love to see what you've come up with, Ralph. Okay, so the Lagrange point, uh, could you do a slingshot with a spacecraft? What influence does gravity have outside of the Lagrange point? Uh, I, I suppose the question in my mind is how far out of the Lagrange point would you have to be to start feeling the effect of uh, gravitational pull? Yeah. I mean, is it a big point? That's a good question that he asked me. It, it's So the, the way to think of it is... Uh... Is a gravity well? If you if you imagine gravity as a <clears throat> as a sort of well, the old trampoline analogy. Um, <clears throat> when you when you when you're standing on a trampoline, you, you you're creating a well, uh, and for a black hole, that's a very very deep well. Uh, for a Lagrange point, it's it's a, not as deep, but it's still a null point. There is a null gravity point there. <clears throat> Excuse me, and it's it's a combination of the gravitational forces and the rotational forces of the of the, the fact that you you know your, your planets are going around the sun, um, but I think the answer to the question is no, um, because with a gravitational slingshot, what you're doing is transferring some of the the momentum of a planet, <clears throat> and remember, momentum is mass times velocity. You're transferring some of the momentum of the planet to the spacecraft. Uh, and it's that gravitational interaction that lets you do that. Well, a, a Lagrange point doesn't have any momentum because there's no mass there. It's just a gravitational null point. So I think the answer is no, but it's a really nice idea. Um, uh, one of the other things that's interesting about these uh, slingshots is that I think the rotation of the planets <clears throat> themselves also contributes to the effect uh, because you get, um, as I remember, you get a slightly different effects 
depending on which side of the equator of a of a planet you you approach it for the gravitational slingshot. I looked at the details of this a long time ago, and it's all a bit hazy now. But I, I think you need a, a gravitating body there in order for it to work, and perhaps even a rotating one as well. Mm. <clears throat> um, yeah, Ralph uh, mentioned something that uh, is true about this: the, the Lagrange point isn't stable; it moves with the movement of the objects that yeah. are creating it. Therefore, the James Webb Telescope has to um, move accordingly. That's right. So, so uh, in fact, the the James Webb is in orbit around the, the Lagrange point. So, um, mm. it's uh, and and it's because everything's moving. Uh, you you need to keep it on station, keep it keep it in the proper orbit around the Lagrange point. So, there's there is that's why, as you said earlier uh, in this this uh, podcast. Um, the, the telescope's got enough fuel for twenty years of operation. That's what it needs it for to keep it keep it located in the right orbit. Yes, indeed. <clears throat> All right, Ralph. Um, thank you for your question. We're going to just throw in one more quick one. Uh, we're going to the UK this time. Hi guys, love the show. It's Andy from Eastbourne on the south coast in England. Here, it's my birthday tomorrow, and I'm fifty six years old. The question I've got is how far have I moved through the universe in those fifty six years? Uh, be interested to know the answer. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. Happy birthday. Yes, happy, happy birthday. birthday. <clears throat> 56. It's such a significant age. It sounds pretty youthful to me, I can tell you. <laughs> it's, it's just one of those numbers. 56. Yay. What does that mean? It means 56. Um, how far has he travelled in the universe in 56 years? That's a great question. It is. And so, um, you know, a lot depends on what you regard as your standard of rest. In other words, what's the, what is stationary in the universe? And <clears throat> because there's, when you think about the way we're moving, there's a number of different ways that we are moving. Uh, the Earth is moving around the sun at 30 kilometers per second. So you could work out to, you know, uh, 30, 30 times uh, 3,600, which is the number of seconds in an hour times 24, the number of hours in a day, times 365.25, which is the number of days in a year, times 56, and that will give you the answer as to how far we've travelled around the sun. Um, but the sun itself has a velocity too uh, with respect to um, the, 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 the galaxy. Uh, that Our velocity is around about 250 kilometres per second around <clears throat> the galactic centre. So you can do the same calculation but use that. But the one that I think is probably the best one to use if you want to know how far you've travelled in your lifetime. Let, through... let me guess, the Monty Python song. <laughs> yes, that's true. that would do it. That would do it. <laughs> um, the, 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 um, I've forgotten the name of that song. It's got a proper name. Um, it's, a, it's a march, isn't it? Is it Liberty Bell? It's one of those. One of those Susan I marches. I was thinking of the one where they say you're uh, standing on. Oh, that one. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, that's right. Rotating at 900 miles an hour. You, you're thinking of a different one. That's the Universe yeah. song. That's right. The yes. Universe song. That's yes. Right. Yeah. It's good. It's a great one. And and actually, what it what it says is pretty accurate still, even though that was written 40 years ago or something. Um, but let me just um, wind this up, because uh, you could say that our most absolute motion in the universe, uh, through the universe, is relative to the cosmic microwave background radiation. Now, that, that radiation, which we see in all directions, is essentially the flash of the Big Bang, 
we're looking mm. out into space so far that we're looking back in time to when the universe was still glowing brightly. And we can actually measure our velocity with respect to that. Uh, and, it, and in a sense, you could say, well, is that the absolute standard of rest of the universe? Well, maybe it is. Um, it, it's debatable. Um, but the sun's velocity relative to that uh, cosmic rest frame, if I can put it that way, is, wait for it, 369.82 kilometers per second. We know it very, very accurately. Right. Um, and so that, if you take that 369.82 seconds and multiply it by all the things that I said before to get to how far you've traveled in 56 years, that's the answer. I'm not going to do the sum because we haven't time, but it's a big number. I think uh, you will probably, Andy, need to get a scientific calculator for this one. I think just just multiplying will do. It'll just come out with a big number. <laughs> yeah. my, my calculator usually when I try to work that thing out, uh, comes up with a big E. Yes. <laughs> e for error. Well, you can't do it. Too many numbers. Too, too big. Too big a number, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but when you do figure it out, Andy, uh, let us know how far you've gone. Uh, I will I will have gone further, of course, a little <laughs> bit further. Fred would have gone a hell of a lot further. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I just knew it was coming, yeah. <laughs> well, Andy was the one that brought up age. It he did, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't have a problem. With Thanks, it. Andy. Lovely to hear from you. Hope all is well in Eastbourne. And I used to live in Eastbourne. Just to did you? In. Yeah, I did. Yeah. In fact, my elder daughter was born in Eastbourne Hospital. Well, as uh, soon as you le you left, Andy found out, and that's why he moved. <laughs> dear, oh dear. All right. Uh, if you do have questions for us, of course, you can send them to us via our website, spacenutspodcast.com. You can uh, click on the little link on the right-hand side that's sitting on its on its back. It says, send us your voice message, uh, message, which is where you can send an audio question, or you can click on the AMA tab, which I'm doing right now, and there you can upload a text or audio question. And while you're visiting, Click on the shop link and see what you haven't got that we have, like stickers and tote bags and cups and shirts and everything else that goes along with being a space nut. Get your get your goodies online through spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. Thank you, Fred. As always, it's great fun and we really appreciate you spending time with us. Uh, it's a great pleasure. It's a lot of fun every Wednesday uh, for you and I to get together and do the recording. It's great stuff. Thanks, Andrew. It is indeed. Yeah. All right. Uh, catch you next week, Fred. Thank you. Yep. Professor Fred Watson, astronomer, astronomer at large, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again for spending some time with us. We look forward to your company on the very next episode. We'll see you then. Bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.